Well, we are continuing on in our series in the book of Daniel, um, and we're picking it up in the middle of chapter one. Uh, but before we dig into it, um, let's just pray. Lord, uh, would you uh, grant us uh, discernment? Would you grant us wisdom as we seek to follow you uh, when when things aren't clear, uh, would you remind us who you are? Uh, would you help us to grow in trusting you? Uh, would you guide us by your spirit as we uh, look into uh, your holy word, into a, uh, a uh, really tough time in, in, uh, in the history of your people? Um, we look to you. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, we're in the, uh, the second half of Daniel chapter one. Um, I'm gonna make a little bit of reference to the bit that came before because it kind of provides context to uh, this episode of, uh, of eating, uh, of food uh, with Daniel and uh, his, uh, his friends. But the book of Daniel, it uh, confronts us right from the beginning with the question of, to whom will we pledge allegiance to? Another way uh, maybe of phrasing this question is, to whom or what will we tie our identity to? Now, for those of us who are Christians, uh, the expected Sunday school answer is, of course, Jesus. But behind these questions of allegiance and identity lies an even more fundamental one that uh, was brought up last week. Does it make sense to trust God if he allows everything that gives certainty in life to begin to crumble? Because uh, when life falls apart, uh, that's, that's when you really start to see who your friends are, right? It's, it's when you start to see who you can trust. And maybe it's what you, uh, it's how you really dig into what you really believe. And, and the quality of what you place your hope in is exposed. Now, depending on your preferred source of news or commentary on society today, you may be under the impression that everything that gives certainty to life has crumbled already or is in the process of catastrophic meltdown. And depending on your preferred source of commentary, there are various explanations as to why there's reason to panic or not. I'm not going to go into all the details of those things. Um, it's not that they're not important. Uh, you know, there's things like politics, the pandemic, racism, the economy. Um, and the thing is, all these things are potential sources of identification and purpose for us. But as unsettling as, uh, and perhaps even as traumatic as some of these things we face today are, we're, we're not at the level of catastrophic destruction that Daniel is enduring in our passage. So what we're going to do is take a closer look at the situation that Daniel's in. Um, we're going to take a look at how he navigates that situation. And we're going to see, like, what can we learn um, that will help us to live wisely in our own time. So first, the situation. Daniel has just had his entire world turned upside down. God's people, the Israelites, are a mess. Prior to this time, uh, the kingdom of Israel had been divided into two. And the northern half of the kingdom was completely destroyed, wiped out by the Assyrians. And those, uh, 
who are sent off into exile under that regime uh, were just never really heard from again. It was part of how the Assyrians conquered uh, the people that they came across. And so what, but what remained uh, was the southern part of the kingdom, uh, known primarily by the tribe of Judah, and the main city of Jerusalem where the temple was located. But now as we come to Daniel, uh, a new empire, the Babylonian empire, has risen up and they've unseated the Assyrians. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has laid siege to Jerusalem and conquered Judah. And we enter the story right at the beginning of a series of events whereby the remnants of the people of Israel are oppressed and dismantled and, and exiled. And there, there's a few different waves of occupation and violence and exile that happen. Um, kind of happens throughout the entire book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 is set in the first wave of that occupation. And, uh, and Babylon, uh, they're, they're a different occupying force than Assyria. Um, Assyria had divided up populations of the people they'd conquered and scattered them throughout their empire. Uh, and, and their effort was just to assimilate everybody into their own culture. That's part of why the, the northern kingdom, of, uh, northern Israelite kingdom, never recovered um, and was just absorbed. But Babylon operated differently. They tended to focus first on the people in power the king or the nobility, uh, those sorts of people. And we, we, we see that in Daniel chapter 1. Um, after laying siege to Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar conquers it, and King Jeho Jehoiakim of Judah is left as, as something of a puppet king, uh, having to pay tribute to the occupying forces. But Nebuchadnezzar uh, takes more than just uh, vessels from the Israelite temple that were given in tribute uh, so that he can take them back to Babylon. He doesn't just take that. He takes people. Specifically, he takes the choice people from among the Israelite nobility. Good-looking, smart, healthy, young people. And he puts them into a three-year program of, of basically a sort of indoctrination and assimilation into Babylonian culture and religion. So, so the situation is whether one remains in their homeland under foreign rule or one is sent off to exile far away from home, there's no escaping Babylon. So Daniel, along with three others, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are among, they're among the young men that are taken away to Babylon. Uh, and Daniel is actually going to end up living a long time in Babylon. In fact, he's actually going to outlive the Babylonian Empire. So uh, we might be tempted to think that uh, maybe Daniel and these men didn't have it quite as bad as they could have. It, you know, it could be worse. Uh, after all, they're, they're from among the nobility. Uh, they're getting an education. Uh, Daniel, even in her passage, gets to quibble about the kind of food he's going to eat from the king's offerings. But that would uh, be a mistaken assumption. Um, there is actually uh, what going, is going on is this all-consuming attempt uh, to redefine these men's allegiance, uh, both in terms of to the king uh, and to who they would say God is. Um, they're trying to redefine these guys' identity in light of those things. And so allegiance and identity go close in hand here. Daniel, Hananiah, Mish Mishael, and Azariah 
um, are not being sent off to boarding school so that they can get into the choice school um, for college. Uh, let's just try for a moment to, to imagine what it's like for them. They're, they're young men. We don't know an exact age, but most likely they would have been somewhere between 14 and 20, probably teenagers. Right? They're, they're ripped away from their families and they're sent to a foreign land against their will. They're given new names. And this is not like choosing to go by your middle name or, or taking on a nickname. Uh, names in that culture had great significance and meaning. Uh, on the one hand, a new name signi signified ownership. On the other hand, it signified allegiance. And each one of their names is changed from something that signified allegiance to the Israel's God to one signifying allegiance to Babylon's God or a Babylonian God. There is a number of different gods. So for example, Daniel's name means God is my judge. And his name's changed to Belshazzar, which means Bel's prince. And Bel's a Babylonian God. Hananiah means uh, whom Yahweh has favored. Uh, his name is changed to Shadrach, uh, which means inspired by the sun god Aku, and, and so on. All, all four of them have their, their names changed. So, so there's a name change, but, but there's more. They're to be taught the literature and the language of the Babylonians. Language and the common stories of a culture are important parts of identity formation. If you ever you know, had to learn a new language or if you've lived in a place where uh, the language is not your, your, your native tongue, um, you know how important language is and, and how like, there's just certain things uh, that, that you just you think differently when you're using a different language. Um, learning a language changes you in a way. And as for the education that these young men would have been given, um, they were among the magicians in the sages. Uh, they probably would have been taught things like divination and other things that were prohibited in Israel. But, but there, there's more too. Um, in verse nine, uh, as we come into our passage, uh, we, we find that Daniel uh, is reporting to the chief of the eunuchs. Now, the evidence here is, is a bit circumstantial, but a common practice in the Babylonian court was that those who worked in close proximity to the king were made to be eunuchs. And much of Jewish tradition and early Christian tradition held that this is what happened to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So if we pause here for a moment, do, do you feel the weight of what is happening to these young men? Right, they're, they're, they're probably still teenagers. Everything about them is being questioned and changed and in some ways it's being violently done. And this makes, uh, excuse me, this makes Daniel's resolve to eat only vegetables and not drink wine kind of an odd place to take your stand against an empire. Like, I mean, if, if I'm like 15 years old and some guy's coming after me with a knife, like that's where I'm gonna try to throw, the, throw down. Like, like that, that's where I draw the line. But, but Daniel picks this, this, this food thing. Um, so, so the question is like, like, what is Daniel doing as he navigates this situation? Well, there's, there's a word here that is repeated twice in verse eight and that, that word's defile. Um, verse eight reads, 
But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Again, uh, this, this is odd uh, given all that he's facing and that all that he's going to endure. But, but the word defile is an interesting word to use here. Um, it is language that's usually associated with a, a person or a thing's state of being before God, like, like at the temple or something. Um, there's a whole uh, holiness code that governed life uh, for an Israelite. And it was kind of like a scale. People could either be unclean, clean, holy, or even most holy. And to move from unclean to clean or clean to holy, um, especially from clean to holy, one was sanctified. Um, that is, they were made holy. To move the other way, um, to move from holy down to unclean, uh, it was to be profaned or to be defiled. Later on in the experience of God's people, uh, when things get really, really, really bad, um, another ruler, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, will eventually defile the temple in Jerusalem by sacrificing a pig on the altar. And so somewhere in, in, in where Daniel is he decides that this issue of food is where he's going to make his stand. This is where he's going to be marked, um, where he's going to be set aside for God. And it doesn't really appear to be completely related to the food laws that Israelites had in place. There were certain foods that were considered clean and unclean, and um, those really had the effect of marking out the Israelites as a distinct people. But they don't actually correspond to the food and wine that Daniel's objecting to. And Daniel even seems okay with drinking wine later on in the book of Daniel. So this isn't like a permanent thing that Daniel's doing. Um, but there, there is uh, an issue. Uh, there, there's, there's a matter that most of the food here would have been sacrificed or dedicated to the Babylonian gods. And to eat it, especially to eat it in the presence of the king or in the court, would, do, would be to show allegiance to those gods and to that king. Now, Daniel, he, 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 he's, he's in this place where like, he can't really get around all of that completely. But he discerns that this seems to be a space where he can make a statement of loyalty to his God. And it's dangerous. There's political undertones to this whole passage. And we see that in how the chief of the eunuchs resists Daniel's request to not be defiled in verses 9 and 10. Uh, he basically says, no way. Like, if, if anything goes wrong with this, it's my head on the line, and I'm not going to risk it. But, but Daniel's not deterred by the initial resistance from the chief of the eunuchs. He, he goes uh, to like, the number two man in charge, to the steward. And in verse 11, he proposes uh, an actual plan um, for himself and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The plan is that they'll only have vegetable and, waters, and water for 10 days. Then they'll be evaluated for their physical appearance and health. And steward, he, he decides to go for that. So Daniel, Daniel is setting himself apart to God in the way that he can in his circumstances. Uh, in some ways, it feels uh, almost insignificant on the surface, vegetables and water. 
uh, and ex especially in the face of the other indignities he'll face uh, as Babylon uh, pushes its, uh, its, its attempt to shift his allegiance away from his God. And wh what is it that allows Daniel to do this? What is it that allows Daniel to take this risk? It seems that there is something compelling about God that is driving his actions. There's something so compelling about the God of his people that it drives Daniel to remain faithful even as all seems lost. And throughout the first chapter of Daniel, there's three references to God acting. The first one is God handing his people over to the Babylonians as the result of their continued rejection of him. But, but God does not abandon his people even as they're turned over to the Babylonians. Uh, in fact, he remains uh, with them even in exile. Um, in, in verse 9, God is the one who gives Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel discerns this, right? There, there's, there's something different about this guy. The end result of Daniel kind of following that, that, that intuition um, is that everybody benefits, right? The steward ends up changing up everybody's diet because Daniel and the other guys are doing so well after 10 days, they're actually stronger. But it, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, God, God shows up for a third time in verse 17. And, and God, God, when he shows up here, it, it's, always, it's never really up front in your face. It's kind of like in the background a bit. But in verse 17, it reads, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. So, so God here, um, he gives them uh, everything they need. Everything they need, not just to exist and scrape by, but actually to excel where they've been put. And, and we're going to see the effect that these guys have on a foreign kingdom, uh, even as they remain in exile, as we continue on in Daniel over the next few weeks. But, but I want to stay focused on what's so compelling to Daniel about God that he risks so much over vegetables and wine. To be honest, um, I, I don't know exactly what's going through Daniel's mind at this time. Right? I don't know what it is that clicked in that moment for him about God's character. Maybe he remembers God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing to many nations. Maybe he remembers how God was with Joseph when he was sold as a slave to the Egyptians. Maybe he remembers God's faithfulness to his people in delivering them from slavery in Egypt and providing for them as they wandered in the desert. Maybe he's memorized some of David's psalms that speak to God's steadfast love. Maybe it's something like uh, psalm, uh, the psalm that we recited, Psalm 142. Um, where I, I cried out to you, O Lord, and said, You are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Consider my complaint, for I am brought very low. O deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks unto your name. 
When you show your loving kindness, then the righteous, then shall the righteous gather around me. The thing about, about all of this um, is that God's character remains consistent, uh, even as the people he chooses live with the consequences of rejecting his love and his leading. And so even as everything that makes up Daniel's identity is being broken down, his culture, his family, his home, his religion, his sexuality, his vocation, his nationality, even as all that's being broke down, um, he's left with a sliver of God's faithfulness. And that's enough for him to grasp onto. So let, 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 let's jump a bit in history to today. Skipping over a whole lot, but if we jump to today, um, we read this, um, and we're aware of much more of the whole story of history than, than, than Daniel was. Um, but most important is we can see, we can now see God's faithfulness through Jesus. Right? Jesus is God's ultimate statement that he has not abandoned his people or his creation. Jesus is God coming into the brokenness of the world and starting to set things right. Jesus is God's faithfulness. But, but what, what does that mean? Well, Jesus, as God, he's consistent with God's character. He still calls for our allegiance, and he offers us a whole restored identity. He's still faithful. And this, all this still happens in an environment where there are many other things that are demanding our allegiance and offering to give us meaning and purpose and identity. Even though our world is different than, than the Babylonian Empire. But it's often when we are confronted with the brokenness of the world and our own brokenness that we realize that we need help. We realize that the things we give allegiance to and find our identity in, whether that's voluntary or imposed on us, those things are fleeting or temporary or they de dehumanize us even further. Right? And that's why uh, when, when we gather together here, one of our constant themes is that we look to Jesus. And so if we, we say take a look at, at one of the central symbols of our faith, um, that, that symbol of baptism, um, we can kind of see this. Um, baptism, um, there, there's the, the symbolism of dying to self um, and being raised to new life in Christ. Now, I know like we're, we're Anglicans and often it'll be sprinkling, but I grew up uh, in a tradition where we dunked people in tanks. And there's, there's a very real um, visual picture of you're going down, you're dying, and you're being raised to, to new life. Um, and, and what we're dying to is that, that old self, that old identity. And, and our new identity is now found in being united to Jesus in his death, whereby he deals with all the mess of sin in our lives and, and we're, we're bound to him in his resurrection where, where we're free to really live. Um, part, part of all of this uh, is letting go of all the things that we go to to define us. Right? A lot of those things we can see in the things that are stripped away from Daniel. Right? When they're stripped away by force, that, that's traumatic, right? There's family, culture, vocation, sexuality, autonomy. All of these things um, are, are stripped away here. 
But maybe it's, it's when those things are brought to light, um, it's time to lay down those things for something better. Right? Hopefully it's not a traumatic event that, that opens our eyes to, to what holds our allegiance. But sometimes that's what it takes. And, and, and so it's not that um, you know, all these other markers of identity are not important. Um, it's just that none of those can be the animating creative center of our being. They can't be the things that we give primary allegiance to. That needs to belong to God. That, 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 that belongs to Jesus. And when we yield the allegiance to Jesus, we find that those things, those other things, um, quite often they're, they're given back to us, but they're transformed, they're made whole, they're redirected, they're properly ordered. Um, we're, 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 we're made new. Our passage ends with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah standing before the king as his consultants. They end up being 10 times better than all the other magicians, um, all the other wise men, all the enchanters, everybody in the kingdom. Right? Of course, that's where we want to be, isn't it? Like, like, like we want to be in that space, uh, restored to a place of honor and meaning. Um, but, but that... That the, the road to that, it starts with the everyday seemingly small things that set us apart to God, right? An everyday sort of holiness. And, and how do we determine what those things are? Well, well looking at Daniel, we, we see wisdom's needed. Um, that's a theme that's going to be expanded on as we continue on throughout the book of Daniel. But... We need wisdom. Um, wisdom, um, all of these things, um, it starts with looking at Jesus. Right? It starts with giving um, Jesus our allegiance. It starts with finding out that, that Jesus is actually our wisdom. And so, challenge for us um, as, as we come to a close here, as we move towards looking to to uh, celebrating Holy Communion, where it's another way where we look at the mess of what we have and, and how we actually end up at the end of that where we're giving allegiance to Jesus. Um, as we look at where we are today, the world around us, what are the things that, um, what are the things that are competing for our allegiance? Um, Hold those up, um, but hold them up in the light of Jesus. Um, Jesus is the one who, who, who uh, deserves our allegiance. And so encouragement is look to Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.